Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You care about where your food comes from, whether it's for you or your pets. That's why Purina makes every ingredient count and is committed to responsible sourcing of ingredients. Learn more at Purina.com cares. Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina has hundreds of pet food recipes that are made without artificial flavors or preservatives and is striving for 100% recyclable or reusable packaging by 2025 so that they can help make the world a better place. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 27th. Today, how private schools are responding to COVID. The privacy questions around TikTok. And John Lewis's final journey. Right now, a lot of private schools in the region and across the country say that they are going to be open for at least some in-person learning. You are definitely seeing an uptick of interest in these private schools. I'm Perry Stein, and I cover D.C. schools and education for The Washington Post. I spoke to a mom in this story who loved her public school and she loved the virtual learning, but she had to scale back her hours at work, go from full-time to part-time to help her son in the spring with his distance learning. And she feels she's at a pivotal time in her career. She's ambitious. She wants certain goals and she feels like she wants to go back full-time. And so she pulled him out of the public school and is planning to put him in a private school that says it will be open five days a week. This will allow her to go back to work full time. Now, she's aware and it's true that not every family will have that option, even though they also struggle watching their kids during the day. And why are we seeing more private schools going for this option than public schools? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Private schools will say they're better equipped to do in-person learning. They often have smaller class sizes to begin with, sometimes six, sometimes 12. Compare that to 30 in a public school or whatever the number may be. So that makes it easier to social distance. They also typically have bigger campuses. You know, you think of these elite private schools on these sprawling green spaces, and that is the case for some private schools. And they also have oftentimes more resources and money to allow them to more safely pull this off. That's one reason. Some teachers that I've spoken to and some other people who are more skeptical of charter schools open say that they're doing it because they have a lot of pressure. They have parents paying a lot of money who want in-person learning. And so they want to make sure that their parents don't flee for public schools if they go all remote. So they're doing their best to keep their students and families and they're going in person. And so if you have this situation where a lot or or even the majority of public schools are closed in person and dealing with virtual learning and all the problems that that entails, and then you have private schools that are going to be in person and and carrying on as normal, what are the long-term implications of that? Well, what we've seen in this pandemic is that it has unearthed a lot of existing inequalities that already 
occur and exist within our education landscape in the United States. And this is just one example. I mean, you have private school students who may be going back to school to in-person learning next year, while you have public school students who may be doing all remote learning. And we know that everyone will tell you that remote learning is no substitute for in-person learning. And we know that remote learning left a lot of kids behind in the spring, particularly kids from low-income family, kids who have special learning needs, kids who probably need school the most. And you mentioned that there are some concerns that the reason why private schools are are keeping their schools open or keeping their buildings open in the fall is because there is a financial incentive to do so or a concern that that parents will flip out if they're paying tens of thousands of dollars in tuition for virtual learning. But is there a concern that that will extend out even if the risk of COVID resurgences in these places becomes more acute in the fall? Like, are they concerned that, that this is just not a safe decision and that some of these private schools won't close down quickly enough because they'll be too worried about the tuition aspect of things versus the, the public health aspect of things? That is what I'm hearing from some teachers who do feel that way. Obviously, the schools that I've spoken with stress that they are trying to do this safely. The kids will have masks. They're going to have small class sizes. Some of the schools are going to be doing it in cohorts where a hybrid model where kids go some days and stay home and do remote learning the other days to ensure that they have these small, socially distant class sizes. But there are teachers who feel that Yes, that is why their schools are doing it, and it won't be safe. No private school teachers are unionized like you are in the public school system, so it's hard to really see and get a sense of what teachers are feeling. I've called a lot. A lot of them didn't want to speak to me because, you know, they are afraid of speaking out, but... You know, I've heard varying things. I think there are some schools that probably have good relationships with the teachers and maybe teachers were at the table helping to make these decisions. So I think it varies across the board. What do you think the effects of this dynamic will be down the line? The fact that, you know, you have private schools that have more latitude to be able to stay open, even though so many kids in public schools around the country are going to be stuck at home for the fall. I mean, you're going to have in the fall, you're going to have some kids in school, in classrooms and getting the benefits of that and some not. Now, the question is, is that as a country, is this going to fall along socioeconomic lines? Are you going to see the wealthier parents that can afford it or even middle income parents that can afford it going to private school or, you know, hiring tutors or forming what we have seen called these learning pods, which is when they get together with kids in their class and hire private tutors or teachers or people to make sure that their kids are getting a rigorous grade level education or some families are looking to private schools that say they'll be open. So there is a fear that the kids that will have to solely rely on the offerings of their public school system, which may be all remote learning, may be disproportionately low-income kids and kids that don't have all these resources at home and rely on their school for their educations. Perry Stein is a local education reporter for The Post. So over the last few weeks, it seems like a lot of people have suddenly become very concerned about TikTok. 
a latest development in the ongoing backlash against the video app TikTok. The Trump administration is considering banning the popular social media app amid concerns about Chinese influence over the company. The Indian government has banned dozens of Chinese-owned apps over apparent security concerns. Amazon has instructed all of its employees to immediately delete the app from their phones. We want to make sure that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have a way to easily access that. And The list includes the messaging service WeChat and the wildly popular video platform TikTok. I was very surprised because TikTok just seems like a thing that kids and younger millennials use and is totally innocuous. So should we stop using this app? Well, this case is particularly complicated and it really gets to how personal technology and geopolitics are kind of intermingling now more and more in ways that we're going to really have to wrestle with. I mean, you may remember last summer, there was a whole big freak out about another foreign app uh, called FaceApp. That was the one that made you look really old. And people thought that it was selling people's photos to Russia or something like that. Exactly. Right. That was the one, you know, they're based in Russia, you know, does Putin have my face now? And the latest version of this kind of freakout is about TikTok. Uh, but maybe in a way, TikTok's even bigger. It's used by a lot more people. We know it's been downloaded more than 2 billion times. And also, it is Gen Z's favorite app, right? This is like how a lot of young people are surviving the coronavirus. Um, you know, the TikTok videos bring them life. Hey, we do a lot of them here at The Post. I'm Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist for The Washington Post in San Francisco. So these people who are suddenly saying that they have very serious concerns about this app, what are they actually worried about? The U.S. government sort of has two kinds of concerns about TikTok. The first is that it could be used to gather data about millions and millions of Americans. I mean, as we know, our phones have so much information about where we go, who we are, what our friends are, what we're interested in. And TikTok could give the Chinese government a direct line into it if TikTok's owners provide it to them. The other thing that it could do is that, you know, TikTok also controls the information uh, that a growing number of people in the United States, particularly young people, get to see, you know, what protests to join, what issues they care about. And again, uh, when you're owned by a company in China, technically the government there could have some control over that, could have some sway over... Um, what dominates the news in the United States. So then what do we actually know about the data that TikTok is collecting? To figure that out, I went back to uh, a strategy I've used before in my secret life of our data investigations for The Post. Uh, and I you know, called up one of my favorite hackers and I said, let's just follow the data. Let's see how much it collects, where it goes, and what happens to it. Here's what we found. TikTok collects a lot of data. In the first nine seconds after you open the app, it sends out 500 kilobytes of data from your phone. That's about half a megabyte or equivalent to 125 pages of typed data. Oh, wow. That is a lot of information from one app just for opening it. Like every time you open the app, it's going to know who you are, where you are, who your friends are, what your contacts are, enough to really understand you as a person. That said... 
it isn't any more data than Facebook is collecting about you. In many ways, it's actually less because Facebook also tracks you when you don't open the Facebook app. Facebook tracks you every time, uh, even when your phone is off, like Mm. when you make a purchase in stores, when you're on other websites. Well, because Facebook is used as logins for so many different other platforms. And so I'm sure that they're tracking that data of when you're logging in to buy a thing here or to subscribe to a thing there. Totally right. And so what it kind of comes down to from a certain perspective is both Facebook and TikTok are data mining your life. So do you trust an American-owned company to data mine your life more than you trust a Chinese-owned company to data mine your life? I mean, one of the arguments here is that actually the U.S. just needs laws that apply to all companies, regardless of who owns them, that sort of restrict and regulate some of this data collection. And we still don't have that in America. And what does TikTok say about what they are doing with this data that they collect? So as it's increasingly come under the gun from lawmakers in the U.S., TikTok has been taking some efforts to separate itself from its Chinese owner. They say now that they don't store uh, your data on servers in China. And in our study looking inside the app, we found that at least it wasn't going directly there. It It went directly to the United States and Singapore. They also say that they have not and will not give our data to the Chinese government if they're asked. Mm. Uh, So uh, again, that's a promise. It's hard though for us to know whether to trust them, right? You know, there's lots of ways that that the government in China could exercise influence over TikTok's owner. And then what about this issue of whether TikTok could actually be influencing discourse in America by choosing what is or is not promoted when you go into TikTok and watch all these videos? Any social network that relies on an algorithm to decide, you know, what gets uh, put up front in front of your face has a lot of power. We've learned that certainly about Facebook and Twitter with regards to elections and other kinds of issues. And in the case of China, look, the Chinese government has a long and not great history of silencing dissent online and of trying to target minority groups uh, in China using the internet. So there is reason to be concerned based on their history. That said, there's no evidence right now that they're really manipulating the United States conversation. So I guess the point is right now, we don't know, but there's concern that in the long run, the Chinese government can't be trusted. So is there anything that we could be doing to continue to use this app safely? Well, one general piece of advice I often give folks uh, is, when the internet wants information about you, lie. Like when you have to log into the uh, to the TikTok app, don't give it your real name. Don't give it your real email address. Get an email address that's kind of a throwaway one. You know, pseudonyms, there's a long, proud history of using them in American culture to express yourself freely and not be tracked down. I mean, even Alexander Hamilton used a pseudonym to, uh, <laughs> to write the Federalist Papers. So I'm all about using pseudonyms on the it's internet It's an act today. of patriotism. Exactly. You know, it, that's never occurred to me before to just use fake names because I, I feel like I so associate that with trolls or with being a dishonest actor on Facebook or Twitter. Like you want to be who you are and to represent yourself truthfully. But in some cases, it seems like they actually don't deserve that. Like we should just use fake names that you can't associate with the rest of our online personas. 
Yeah, the the data nerds out there call this obfuscation, and it's like all the rage right now. And some people think it's the only way that we'll really uh, be able to survive the surveillance apocalypse that is upon us with all of our technology, just by lying to the machines whenever possible so they get confused. I also wonder what you think about the fact that these concerns about TikTok are happening now. Because as you're pointing out, there are so many other apps that we give plenty of data to that just happen to be owned by Facebook or by American companies. And I wonder how much of this is about legitimate privacy issues that are specific to this app and how much of this is freaking out because this app is based in China. Yeah, I think the word we need to wrestle with here is xenophobia. Right? Fearing these technology companies because they're not owned by Americans. I'm not saying that there aren't some legitimate reasons to be concerned about having, uh, you know, a, a company with ties to the Chinese government or at least allegiance to the Chinese government have power over our data. But we, I think we really need to base this conversation in facts. And what are the facts that are here now about what's really happening? And right now, the facts are pretty thin that the Chinese government is either looking at or manipulating the information uh, that we're seeing in TikTok. Jeff Fowler is a technology columnist for The Post. And now, one more thing. Over the weekend, the family of late Congressman John Lewis held a funeral in his hometown of Troy, Alabama. When John was first sworn into Congress, I think I got my year right in 1986, I was there. And during the swearing-in ceremony, right before the swearing-in ceremony, he looked up. He knew where I was sitting. And he looked up and he gave me the thumbs up. And I gave him the thumbs up back. So after the event was over, we was together, and I asked him, I said, John, what were you thinking when you gave me the thumbs up? He said, I was thinking this was a long way from the cotton fields of Alabama. So, and those are the memories that I have with my brother. On Sunday, Lewis's remains were taken to Selma, where he was brought by horse-drawn carriage over the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the final time. We heard from post-opinion columnist Michelle Norris about the significance of that journey. John Lewis was a great man who knew how to use good trouble to shake this nation's soul. He took the billy club they beat him with at Selma and turned it into a baton a relay man running toward that promise in our founding documents that says all men are created equal when the word all really meant some and not others. He was a gentle and elegant son of a sharecropper who saw the best in America when Americans who claimed the country for themselves had turned her into something ugly and twisted. He ran at first toward an education at a theological seminary, then at Fisk University, then toward an actual school of hard knocks, finding his way into a protest movement that used boycotts and sit-ins to upend a system where Southern segregation was all but written in stone. Running as one of the first 13 freedom riders who were beaten with lead pipes, baseball bats, and chains, 
running even as he slow walked toward a phalanx of Alabama state troopers at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, a bridge named for a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, a bridge that by now should bear his name. Moving with full deliberation toward the helmeted men in blue, his hands in his pockets and a knapsack on his back containing two books, an apple, an orange, toothpaste, and a toothbrush. If he survived that March 1965 encounter, he knew he would not be getting home soon. Running again and again toward protests that he fully expected to end in arrest, running toward danger, always toward danger, for he came of age in an era where black life was extinguished with alarming regularity. Shootings, bombings, beatings, hangings. Death that was almost never followed by justice in a Jim Crow system where black labor was necessary to stoke the economy, but black bodies were treated at best with contempt. Running toward the people who hated him, but with an erect posture, hoping the world and even the attacker would see the violence and the spittle and understand that hatred is itself a shackle. He knew that any man who held him down in that proverbial ditch would never rise above the muck himself. Running even though he thought he was going to die, not once, but several times. Running because, as he said, we may not have chosen the time, but the time has chosen us. Running while marching, running while carrying protest signs held high in the air, running with a smile and a furrowed brow, running with an open heart. One that was strong enough to comfort men who beat him in his youth and came to his doorstep later in life, graying and bent, seeking forgiveness. Running for office as a city council member, a congressman, running for re-election 16 times. Running with pride, but recognizing that his election and even the election of Barack Obama were merely down payments on the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. And he ran while urging those running alongside him not to become the thing they're fighting against, especially as America once again became more divided, more segregated, more tribal. Running past anger when it would have been reasonable to settle in for a good long time at a place of resentment and retribution. But when I think of John Lewis, I see an affable warrior. Indeed, one of my indelible memories is of an aging congressman dancing on the downbeat in his office to a hit song called, of all things, Happy. With age, he moved more slowly than he had before, especially since December when he announced that he was battling pancreatic cancer. But he kept moving, always shoving this country forward with his mindset on change and his shoulder leaning hard against the rocks of resistance. Running while mentoring, running like a man who said no to hate, but yes to almost every invitation that landed in his inbox. There were so many invitations, constant speeches, endless accolades and awards, nonstop travel. Not so much for the glory, but for the opportunity to show a new generation what a boy from Troy, Alabama could do with his life. This allowed him to issue invitations of his own. Run with me. Run past me. Run toward what he called the beloved community, a nation at peace with itself. If we work hard and work smart and stir up good trouble, we can build a truly great America, not one balanced on a precarious two-legged stool of white supremacy and minority subjugation. His life was a revolution, a revelation, a masterclass, a miracle, a roadmap. But a relay man always relies on someone else to finish the work. 
That billy club that became a baton is now in our hands. The work is now ours to do. The race is ours to win. Michelle Norris is an opinion contributor to The Washington Post. Congressman Lewis is now lying in state at the U.S. Capitol. The general public will be allowed to visit and pay their respects later today and on Tuesday. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have thoughts about the stories that you've heard, send them to us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 